Welcome to Jade Explains Death, a place where the more morbid the curiosity, the better. We'll be confronting the one thing humans fear most, death. Each episode will be dedicated to a manner of death, and I will paint a vivid picture of how each would feel, as well as share some of the darkest yet most interesting real-life stories. Get ready, because we're about to embark on an adventure now. Welcome back, my loves, to another death exploration. Today, we're going to be exploring murders. There is one case in particular that has been widely requested. It is literally the worst murder case to have ever happened. I've been dabbling in true crime writing for a long time. I've never found any case that can hold a light to this one. That being said, this episode may be too much for some listeners. It involves sexual assault and extreme torture. I never want to cause anybody to experience additional trauma. So as always, my content may be upsetting to some and for mature audiences. Listener discretion advised. Today, we are not just going to discuss gruesome murder cases, but I'm going to really break down what some of these victims went through. I will be using autopsy reports, medical case studies, and science to explain the different processes that transpire within the human body. This first case is the worst to ever transpire, partially because the victim defied many odds, and that's not a good thing. She miraculously survived for 44 days, despite being subjected to hundreds of terrible methods of torture. Any one of these things could have killed her fairly early on, yet not one did. I'm talking about the Junko Ferrata murder case, also known as the 44 Days of Hell case. This case occurred in 1988 and 89. Forensics was still in its infancy at that point in time. Also, her autopsy was never publicly released. There are two sources that I found who claim to have court documents, but they don't share the actual documents, just highlights. So obviously, I cannot independently verify these documents. So I've had to be extra creative when researching this episode. I had to put on my investigator's cap mainly because there is a lot of misinformation out there surrounding this case. And I think that is probably due to the fact that it happened so long ago. And the court documents, the autopsy documents, they were never publicly released, so you cannot fact check. And I think over time, the story just changes like a game of telephone. So I found a few articles in Japanese that were actually released in Japan. Two in particular, one was released around the time of the trial, and another one was released many years later. And I don't speak Japanese, so I used Google Translate. It was a process. It's not a perfect science, but I finally cracked it. And these two articles in particular had all overlapping facts. And they also matched up with a lot of the alleged court documents. So I think I have a pretty good handle on what is fact and what is fiction. On November 22nd, 1988, 17-year-old Junko was riding her bike home from her part-time job in Japan. A boy who seemed to be around her same age just kind of appeared out of nowhere and kicked her off of her bike, then ran away. Little did Junko know that this was all part of a sinister plot. Miyano Hiroshi, a classmate of Junko's, also appeared. Coincidentally, he explained that the boy who kicked her was very dangerous. He implied that she needed a safe escort home to ensure that he wouldn't return and commit another assault on her. She accepted his invitation. So the pair began heading in the direction of her home. They got to talking, so much so that Junko was distracted and didn't recognize that they were soon heading in a different direction. Hiroshi had a plan to escort her to an abandoned warehouse. How he lured her inside is unclear, but once they were out of the public's view, Hiroshi's demeanor shifted. He got aggressive with Junko, overpowering her, he also brought up his connections to a known crime group in the area. He said that if Junko didn't do everything that he told her to, he would have members of the group hunt not only her down, but also her family and kill them all. He reiterated that as long as she abided, he would allow her to live a promise that he likely never intended to keep. This wasn't just some empty threat or attempt to control Junko with fear. Hiroshi's connection to this crime group was very well known. For years, a lot of people were afraid of him. Hiroshi sexually assaulted Junko, but still wasn't done. He brought her to a hotel in the area where, of course, he quickly phoned his friends to brag about the acts that he'd just committed. 
and his friends were envious of Hiroshi. They convinced him to keep her captive so that they too could assault the poor girl, and it didn't take much convincing. Suni was heading to a local park, dragging along Junko to meet the other boys. I'm sure that at that point, she still had no idea of the hell that was to come. This group of boys, they were big trouble. They had already allegedly committed several gang rapes, and most people who knew these pieces of filth were terrified of them. Women didn't go to the police because they couldn't trust them to protect them and their families. This is a very dangerous thing to a group of boys who completely lack empathy and are sexually aroused from inducing fear and pain. This basically told them that they were invincible and would never get caught. This most likely played a hand in the group escalating their crimes with Junko. Also, Hiroshi had history with Junko. He had a big crush on her, and he was a stranger to rejection. Most girls wouldn't dream of saying no to him because they were afraid. But Junko was a very strong-willed and well-behaved girl. When Hiroshi made advances, she rebuffed them every time. I can imagine she simply didn't wish to associate with a person who had such a horrible reputation. This provoked rage in Hiroshi. It just continued to fester. His ego couldn't take it. One of the boys who showed up at the park, Nobori Minato's house, was a well-known hangout for the group. Minato's parents were gone from the home, often, but were also too petrified of their aggressive, out-of-control son to ever place any rules on him. It was decided that his home would be Junko's new prison. She was in utter terror. She obviously knew she couldn't fight off all four boys. Her only choice was to go along with them. Right away, upon arriving at the home, it was quickly converted into a house of horrors, Over and over again, each boy sexually assaulted Junko. They just continued to take turns. In the first nine days of captivity, Junko went through the unimaginable. She was sexually assaulted possibly hundreds of times. Other friends were invited over to assault her. She was forced to touch herself repeatedly for the group. She was penetrated with various objects, including scissors, bottles, and roasting needles, She was also sodomized by many of these objects as well. On November 27th, Junko was forced to phone her parents to beg them to call off the police search. She was instructed to say that she was safe and had ran away to a friend's house. It's so difficult for me to understand how in the hell this worked. This was out of character for Junko. I don't get why her parents took her words at face value. Sadly, they indeed called off the search. Now, nobody was looking for her. This escalated her torture further. Prior to making the call, I think the boys had the notion in the back of their minds that they would have to either release her eventually or move her so that she wouldn't be found. That meant that they had to be somewhat cautious about the violence they inflicted in the marks that they left. Once it was cemented that nobody was looking for Junko, They stopped caring about how many injuries they inflicted. This was likely the moment that each decided, possibly subconsciously, that this would eventually end in her death, though they wanted to keep her alive as long as possible so they could continue their demented fun. Junko managed to sneak off to phone emergency one evening. She was so close to getting through. Sadly, she was caught by one of the boys who abruptly hung up the phone, When emergency called back, he explained that the call was a mistake and assistance wasn't needed. Nobody was ever dispatched. This, like so many other things, threw the boys into an absolute fury. They completely cut off all food and water. They forced her to eat live cockroaches found around the house and drink her own urine. They dropped heavy dumbbells on her stomach. They shoved fireworks inside of her mouth, ears, and vagina and lit them. They held up a lighter to her eyelids, which caused them to burn and disintegrate in several areas. I really wish that I could tell you that those actions were the worst of it for Junko. The thing about being beaten and physically tortured for days or weeks or even just hours is, aside from the obvious damage done, 
It kicks off a lot of reactions inside of the body. For one, Junko was basically stuck in a chronic phase where her body was releasing catecholamines like adrenaline. This alone can cause damage to the heart, triggering an erratic heart rate, and it can slow blood flow to organs. The ongoing sexual assaults and sodomy also cause severe injury. She would obtain vaginal tearing, which, aside from being incredibly painful, also opens up an increased risk of infection. The anal sodomy likely caused damage to her bowels, leading to painful inflammation called colitis. This causes at times severe diarrhea, deep clenching, and unrelenting cramping, bleeding, and severe blood loss, dizziness, and nausea. After repeat attacks, prolapse can occur where part of the large intestine slips out of the rectum. This too can lead to severe infection as well as incontinence. Junko likely felt like blue fire was raging from her groin to above her belly button. Deep, pulsating misery radiated from her vagina to her rectum straight through. Any tiny footstep that she took would just cause the fire to roar up like a wave of acid and lava eating away at her insides. Once infection took root, which inevitably at some point it definitely did, fever would strike. Her skin would grow even more sensitive and achy. The thing about illness is that it has a tendency to really intensify any pain that we're already experiencing. As for the dumbbells dropped on her abdomen, this would cause at minimum contusions or bruising to her organs like her kidneys, liver, and spleen. This alone can greatly damage nearby arteries and blood vessels, provoke internal bleeding. It can reduce the function of that organ and create severe blood clots. These blood clots can sometimes halt blood flow to the organ entirely, causing it to begin shutting down. At worst, it would cause one or more of her organs to rupture. This is unlikely earlier on in her captivity. Untreated organ rupture almost always leads to an accelerated death from either blood loss or peritonitis, a catastrophic and painful infection of her cavity surrounding her abdominal organs. There's no way that she would have lived that full 44 days had this happened in that first nine. Eating cooked, clean cockroaches can provide your body with a lot of fuel, though I'm sure they taste nasty. But eating live cockroaches that are found just free roaming around the house is incredibly dangerous. These disgusting creatures crawl around the most bacteria-ridden areas of the home. It's not uncommon for them to be carriers of salmonella, E. coli, and listeria bacteria, all of these will trigger severe infection in the gut. Many of the symptoms of each are very similar. They cause severe diarrhea, colitis, muscle pain and weakness, violent vomiting, and fever. And of course, if you're not being provided with fresh water, you can become so dehydrated from losing fluids. And this is another thing that puts a ton of strain on vital organs like your kidneys and liver. I'm sure you're noticing a trend here. Additionally, the proteins found in cockroaches are recognized by our body as allergens. This can provoke severe asthma attacks in people already suffering from asthma. Some people are already catastrophically allergic to these proteins and their airways will close up and they will go into anaphylaxis. Drinking urine also increases the risk of introducing bacteria into the body and bloodstream. Many of these horrors are already bringing a severe risk of infection. These types of infections need prompt treatment of antibiotics and sometimes even surgical procedures. Without treatment, they can accelerate into sepsis. This happens when the infection seeps into the bloodstream, which is then carried to other areas of the body and organs. Today, in the 21st century, sepsis still carries a mortality rate of 40% with treatment. Without it, death is imminent. Obviously, we know Junko was never provided treatment of any kind. Just in that first nine days, her body was already a powder cake, ready to blow into systemic and deadly infection. It's so remarkable that she survived much longer. It's awful that it didn't kill her sooner because it allowed her to suffer so much more. During days 10 to 19 of Junko's captivity, the horrors escalated further, which is pretty fucking hard to imagine. Junko was forced to stand, a task that was growing increasingly difficult. Her arms were chained to the ceiling with a rope mechanism around her neck designed to tighten and pull any time she attempted to move her arms. The boys basically used her already battered body as a punching bag. One of the boys even practiced roundhouse kicks on her. These acts no doubt resulted in at least 
more damage to her organs, as well as likely several fractured bones. To be reassaulted in already battered areas likely triggered internal bleeding in the tissues surrounding her wounds. This can also cause blood clots that can possibly break off and travel to the lungs. This condition in itself can be very fatal. One of the boys later reported that around this time, Junko couldn't breathe out of her nose any longer. She had developed numerous blood clots in her nostrils and likely sinuses. The boys would force her to lie face down on a concrete floor, I think located in the basement of the home, where they would take turns jumping on the back of her head. This reminds me of the injury called bite the curb, where neo-Nazis used to make people lay down and bite the curb and they would kick them in the head. This completely shattered the bones in her nose and her cheekbones. I can't even imagine the agony of having your already broken face shoved against a hard surface over and over again and having all that pressure applied to the back of your head. It was also around this time that the boys doused Junko's legs in lighter fluid and lit them on fire. They reportedly put the fire out almost immediately after. Had they not, she no doubt would have been dead by the next day. This burning would cause her top layer of skin to split wide open and contract. Fire and heat draws out moisture. Without that moisture, elasticity fades away and the tissue basically shrivels up. Burning alive is also one of the most painful experiences known to man. The worst maddening searing occurs early on before nerves are burnt beyond repair. Once the nerves are completely damaged, the pain can numb a little, but it still exists. It's still unbearable. Considering the fire was allegedly put out immediately, it likely didn't have time to burn down to her nerves. Fire, especially aided by an accelerant like lighter fluid, only needs moments to burn deep. It may not have completely destroyed all of her nerves, but the burns would extend down to her second layer, possibly her third layer of skin. It also would cause at least some damage to her knee joints. This can cause the muscles surrounding them to also contract, causing her joints to form something called constrictures. This is basically your tissue hardens and it makes it incredibly difficult to bend them. Junko was also stabbed repeatedly with various narrow objects all over her legs right after they were burned. Think of the most painful experience you've ever had in your entire life and multiply that by at least 100, depending on what it is. If you've ever experienced an early burn, even small, imagine having a metal sharp object shoved into your burn wound over and over immediately following obtaining the burn. Deep burns also cause fluid loss. Capillaries, our smallest blood vessels, begin to leak. This can cause severe shock or even hypovolemic shock from blood loss. This causes blood pressure to tank rapidly and again can be deadly in itself. After the 20th day, Junko's hands were repeatedly smashed by weights. This caused her fingernails to crack. Some even came off in chunks. This gave the boys the horrid idea to pull the remaining nails off. All of this madness causes a severe sensory overload. It does something to the brain. It can put you in an increased state of awareness in worst cases, or sometimes can cause you to dissociate. And I really hope that Junko experienced the latter. The sexual assaults and sodomy continued day after day. New objects were used, including a burning hot light bulb that shattered while inside. Also, a sharp, long skewer with grilled chicken on it was used, which caused Junko to bleed profusely from her rectum. This likely caused a bowel perforation. That means it poked a hole in her bowels, which allows its contents to leak into her cavity. Again, another serious risk for infection and peritonitis. Around the 30th day, Junko became unrecognizable. She was so severely wounded that it reportedly took her two hours to crawl downstairs to use the bathroom. Shortly after, she became completely incontinent. She could no longer control when she went to the bathroom, something that obviously couldn't be helped. Those sick bastards did that to her. Still, it infuriated her captors, causing them to lash out yet again. She was chained to the ceiling by her arms. She was dead weight at this point, likely riddled with fractured bones and soft tissue damage. It was impossible for her to stand. She just hung by her arms as her captors beat her feet with bamboo sticks. This was actually an ancient torture method used in several countries, including Japan. Junko, now full of infection, began to smell. 
This is common in untreated infections. I'm positive that she had several outbreaks of infection all over her body from stab wounds, burns, and all the other traumatic injuries. She was just filled with infected pus, which does carry a pungent aroma. Also, liver and kidney failure can emit a very strong and unpleasant smell. There's no way in hell she wasn't suffering from some form of acute organ failure at this point. Tragically, even acute organ failure can take weeks or months to kill. It's not a forgiving death. Nothing that Jungo was subjected to was forgiving. She was also radiating inflammation. She no longer looked human. Those sick fox lost sexual interest in Jungo at this point. Widespread inflammation is another thing that's catastrophic in itself. White blood cells can enter the blood and nearby tissue. It's trying to protect it from foreign invaders. Sometimes fluids can leak into organs and joints. Sadly, every part of her body was considered nearby tissue. She suffered injury to every part of her. She was also likely a victim of something called crush syndrome. Having heavy weights dropped on her body repeatedly and her hands smashed are crushing injuries. Metabolites are released from the compressed tissue that can be incredibly toxic to the kidneys. Yet another potential of kidney failure. Once the pressure is released, something called reperfusion injury can occur. This type of injury is not well understood, but it's known to accelerate cell death. When something heavy is putting extreme pressure on tissue, it causes blood flow to be completely cut off. This causes something called ischemia, or basically tissue death due to inadequate blood supply. For whatever reason, once that pressure is lifted, rather than cells getting blood flow again, it seems to cause cells to continue to die at a rapid speed. Unfortunately, these injuries did not cause immediate death in Junko. Because the boys lost interest in Junko sexually, the group began plotting nabbing a new victim. They indeed went out and found another girl. The boys gang-raped the girl but allowed her to leave. Though they no longer wanted to sexually assault Junko, they still wanted to use her as their punching bag. Junko begged multiple times a day to just kill her and end her torment. But these monsters couldn't even grant her that. The new year came. It shifted from 1988 into 89. Instead of being released from her coils of misery, she was forced to face the new year. She was also allegedly forced to sleep out on the balcony at this point in frigid temps. However, this simply can't be true. With temps in the area often reaching the negatives in January, she would have never lived through the first night. Severe burns make you especially susceptible to hypothermia. That's one of the reportings that makes me question how many details were embellished by the boys. I really hope a lot. Regardless, she still suffered more than any one person should or likely has ever suffered at least not with this extreme form of torment. On the 44th day, January 4th, 1989, the boys were fuming after losing a big chunk of money to gambling. They did what they always did during those 44 days. They turned their rage towards Junko. Junko was mutilated. One of her nipples was ripped off using pliers. Various cuts were made all over her body, some deeper than others. She was again assaulted with heavy weights. After these terrible acts, her entire body, including her face, was doused in lighter fluid and lit ablaze, and the fire was not immediately put out. The beginning of this punishment caused Junko to yell out with animalistic groans. Shortly in, however, she stopped writhing in agony. She stopped responding entirely. Once the fire was put out, Junko began violently convulsing, something that had already happened numerous times. She finally slumped over, and her life drained completely from her body, the boys began screaming at her, accusing her of faking. Yes, those dumb fucks beat her senselessly, completely starved her, sodomized her over and over, crushed her, stabbed her, and lit her on fire, yet she was faking. Obviously, these disgusting fools were operating with a very limited IQ in addition to just being terrorists. These terrorists really need to be wiped from the planet. Anyways, Junko was indeed not faking. Junko was dead. She was finally free from her 44-day nightmare, but the boys, being complete dumb fucks, didn't realize she was dead for another 24 hours. They then put her mutilated body inside of a 55-gallon drum, filled it with wet cement, and dumped it. The four main monsters of this tale were eventually caught. I say main monsters because we know other people were brought into this crime at different points in time. The young woman who had been gang-raped during the tail end of Junko's captivity did go to police. There was also a double homicide nearby the location where she was attacked, which led authorities to wonder if the boys may have been connected. 
Hiroshi was brought in for questioning, and with him being as dumb as a fucking box of rocks, he assumed that the questioning about the homicide was referring to Junko. He sang like a canary. Luckily, his reign of terror was over, for a little while at least. Turns out, none of the boys had anything to do with the double homicide, but suspicion did bring some answers to Junko's parents. Police were led to Junko's entombed remains, but this case is not done being infuriating. Hiroshi was only sentenced to 17 years in prison. He pled to a lesser charge. 17 years. That's it. Of course, Hiroshi felt wronged by this sentence. He didn't believe his crime justified that long of a sentence, so he appealed it. And laws in Japan are different from in America. The judge felt the sentence wasn't long enough and added an additional three years, totaling out at 20, still way too light. The others were all sentenced to even lighter sentences of just a few years. All but one of the boys went on to reoffend once released from prison, proving that they should probably just be executed. I hate them. I hope they all die from flesh-eating bacteria. The kicker is that the boys' parents who owned the house where Junko was held captive were completely aware of what was being done to Junko. Not only did they do nothing to help, they also lied to the police to protect their piece of shit son. It was clearly a family of horrible humans. Hiroshi's mother has been accused of decimating Junko's grave on numerous occasions. Why, you ask? Because she believes that Junko ruined her son's life. Death sentences for everybody, please. But not ordinary executions. Let's sentence the boys to first being skinned alive and then crucified. As for the parents who were complicit, maybe something a little less terrible? Just a little. Because was justice served? Fuck no. Those sentences are a joke, and sadly, other people have been put through hell because they were released. This next case is one that everybody knows about. The sheer disregard for human life and utter callousness has haunted the world for three years. So many people have tried really hard to understand the why in this case. I'm talking about the Chris Watts familicide case. If you're here, chances are you already know about this case. You're probably a true crime buff. And it's been covered worldwide in several documentaries, as well as by every major news outlet. But I think that you still will likely learn something new here today. Familicide is the act of one member of the family murdering several other members of the family in quick succession. It often ends with the assailant committing suicide. Though women have been guilty of familicide, this is a crime largely dominated by men. But Chris Watts is an anomaly when it comes to familicide. A common predictor is domestic violence. There is zero evidence of a history of domestic violence in this case. In fact, Chris appeared mousy and agreeable with Shanann. Just the way that he communicated with his wife via text over the years paints the picture that Chris was actually afraid of confrontation. He often simply appeased her. But don't go forming sympathy for this man. This isn't a situation where a good man snapped. I've read several articles of psychologists trying to pipe in with their explanation of who Chris was. Problem is, they were not criminal psychologists. And I'm not a psychologist of any kind, but I am a bit of a savant when it comes to profiling people. One article claimed that Chris wasn't a psychopath, that he simply bottled up his feelings over the years and eventually exploded all over the walls. That's definitely not the case. In addition to giving you details of this crime, breaking down the autopsy reports and explaining what the victims went through, I'm also going to put on my criminal profiling hat. I'm going to do everything in my power to try and finally give you the answer as to why. Chris didn't change overnight like even his own wife suspected in the weeks prior to her murder. I completely understand why she felt that way. Chris was a master at concealing his true identity. He had inadvertently practiced doing just that his entire life. His deep instilled compulsion to control every narrative surrounding himself basically trained him for that. To a rational human, it's unbelievable that someone could actually shield the people closest to them from their true nature for so long, but people do it every day. Every person has a special skill or gift. Unfortunately for people like Chris, their skill is hiding in plain sight. When Chris wrapped his hands tightly around Shanann's neck on August 13th, 2018, 
She was absolutely shell-shocked by his actions. She never saw it coming. The only people close to the family who suspected Chris of the murder early on was Shanann's parents, and they just felt like there was something off about the guy, and they were right. Shanann Watts returned from a business trip at 1.48 a.m. on August 13th. Just hours later, in the early afternoon, Nicole Atkinson, a close friend to Shanann and co-worker, grew concerned when Shanann didn't show up for both a doctor's appointment and later a business meeting. This was out of character for Shanann. She never took sick days and always cued her best friend into her plans. So, doing what any best friend would do, Nicole drove to the home of Shanann and her family. But she knocked and knocked and never received any answers. There was no sign of life inside. She phoned Chris at work and then the police to report her missing. This is when things get screwy. Chris drove home quickly. He practically flew home to meet Nicole. When the police arrived, he seemed more than happy to allow them to come in and look around. In the process of talking to Chris, it's revealed that not just Shanann is missing, but their two baby girls are as well. The interaction was recorded by officers' body cameras. This footage is now famous for two big reasons. One being for Chris's strange behavior, and the second being for viewers later discovering anomalies that resemble ghosts of children. It's actually kind of eerie and convincing and also heartbreaking. Several electronic voice phenomenons were also picked up of what sounds like both Shanann and the babies talking. One of the little girls picked up on camera was later revealed to be Nicole's daughter, but there are many other unexplained pieces. Chris appears very concerned for his family, but he never displayed any true emotion. His wife's important belongings, like her cell phone and purse, were discovered at the home. Again, Chris pretended to be overly concerned, alluding to the fact that it was abnormal for her to leave the home without these items. Chris's demeanor on that body cam footage is very similar to his demeanor in some of Shanann's home videos. One in particular that stands out to me was the video where she surprised Chris with her third pregnancy. Instead of forcing a farce mourning, like in the body cam footage, He's clearly forcing a farce elation and excitement. It's painfully awkward to watch. His eyes don't match with his words. The eyes always tell the story. If you cover his face from the eyes down, you will see a man who is flatlining. He is blank. He's not happy. If anything, he's more annoyed than anything else. I combed through many of their home videos, repeating this process, just looking at his eyes first. And I noticed the same thing in every single one of them. His eyes tell a completely different story from the one that his mouth is telling. And Chris really wasn't a great actor. Problem is, Shanann only ever got the actor known as Chris Watts. She probably believed that is just how he expressed himself. It never really changed. To her, he was probably just a little awkward or maybe had issues with reading social cues. Also, he told her all of the perfect things from the beginning. That makes it easy to overlook his bad acting. I simply cannot find a single home video where I can detect any authentic emotion in his eyes until later on in that body cam footage. There's a moment when you finally get to see the real Chris Watts. Later on that day, on August 13th, after police searched the home, the neighbors next door invited them over to take a look at some of their surveillance footage. Right away, when you see Chris, he shifts you can see that he's starting to struggle with maintaining his facade. This was a wild card. He obviously had no idea what was going to show up on their footage. This footage was indeed of Chris Watts. He was loading up his truck at daybreak. It doesn't seem too strange, but Chris began to melt into pure anxiety and at times terror. You can practically read his thoughts on his forehead. He was thinking, this is it, isn't it? I'm actually going to be walked out of here in cuffs. I'm busted. He looks down at his phone immediately, not to read anything. This was a desperate attempt to shield those around him from his rogue emotions that were now out of his control and impossible to conceal. This was a futile act. It didn't conceal anything. It was all he could think to do in that moment of desperation. He was also trying to prevent himself from reacting to anything else that may pop up on that television screen. He had no idea if possibly his wife's body would show in a frame. As long as he wasn't watching, he couldn't react further, giving himself away. The wheels were turning in his head. While glaring down at his phone, he was not only trying to conceal his feelings, but was also pre-planning what he was going to say had her body wrapped in that sheet showed up. 
His mind was moving so fast, trying to drudge up some excuse that could explain it all away, enough to at least remain free long enough to hatch a second plan. We never do catch a glimpse of what Chris was loading up in his truck. Of course, we all know now what it was. When Chris was out of ear distance, the neighbor explained to the police that Chris was acting obviously weird. That neighbor knew, just like America, while watching his reaction. The officer did too. Of course, he had to hold his cards close to his chest because that's just smart police work. The following day, Chris appeared on the local news, appealing to the public for a safe return of his family. Again, his eyes give him away. It's disgusting to watch. Two days after his family was reported missing, Chris was arrested. Over the span of a few interrogations of Chris, he slowly started to reveal half-truths. Chris's own father was brought in to speak to him. It was then that he decided to admit to killing his wife, but he had to play a hero. He claimed that he killed her in a furious rage only after Shanann killed their babies. Luckily, investigators didn't buy this utter bullshit for one second, though they did pretend to a little. But that did get them what they needed from him. He reluctantly agreed to lead them to his family's bodies, which only made this case even more harrowing. They were led to an oil tank site where he had worked. Shanann's body was found buried, wrapped in a sheet in a shallow grave. But three-year-old Tiny Cece and four-year-old Bella were found in two separate oil tanks. The reason why Chris put those babies in those tanks is so fucked up. It took a long time to get the full authentic story of what actually transpired that day in August 2018. The story's been rewritten a few times. Chris began a relationship with an older woman who was a grandmother while in prison she felt compelled to reach out to him, not because she was a fan, but because she hoped he would give her some answers. And she wasn't wrong. The pair began exchanging letters prolifically. Chris even phoned her from prison a few times. Slowly, over the span of months, he began to open up to her until finally he revealed everything. And it was worse than any of us could have ever imagined. In his letters, he revealed that he embarked in a relationship with a younger co-worker named Nicole Kessinger. With Shanann going away on frequent business trips and trips to stay with family, Chris was left alone to live a bachelor lifestyle. Nicole wasn't even his first extramarital affair. He had began Googling dating tips before anything grew serious with his mistress. Several women and one man later came forward, claiming to have been in a relationship with Chris. Of course, with this being such a high-profile case, you have to take it all with a grain of salt. But several of the accounts were corroborated by witnesses and other evidence. The moment that Chris grew serious with Nicole, he began daydreaming about murdering his wife, Shanann. This is one of the things that Chris admitted in his letter. He wanted to wipe the slate clean and start over with Nicole without carrying any of his baggage with him into that relationship. This goes back to Chris having an innate need to control the narrative surrounding his life. Since he was little, he chose the person that he wanted to be. He created fictional characters of himself slowly. He built it one brick at a time. He groomed the people around him with manipulation. He convinced each individual of each detail that he needed in order to sell his narrative. He even did this with his own parents. He did this with Shanann. Now he was doing this with Nicole, and each time his version of himself changed. For Shanann, he needed to be a loving, empathetic husband and willing father. Shanann raved about Chris throughout their relationship on her social media, painting him as this beautiful, warm man. To her, he really was. He loved this appearance of himself. He fed off of her friends looking to them as the ideal couple. That is, until he grew bored. He did not fit that mold. He honestly never did, but in the beginning, he was so convincing that he almost had himself fooled. Rewind many years, and Chris began practicing the skill on his own parents. His mother really helped to encourage this behavior. She had a very codependent relationship with Chris. He was a mama's boy and loved her attention, and she loved him for it. Slowly over the years, he began doing whatever he could to please her, to keep her closely by his side as his biggest cheerleader. He loved how she bragged of him. He loved how he felt like her favorite. This slowly instilled his addiction to feeling special. He learned how to present himself in a way that pleased the people closest to him. But he didn't actually have an identity. His identity was closely related to the identity that his mother wanted for him. This was especially dangerous because Chris lacked empathy. 
When you take an individual who doesn't have the ability to feel empathy or genuine guilt, and you meld it with needing to feel special and learning how to wrap yourself around a mold of what others need you to be in order to feed that need of feeling special, well, you sometimes end up with a nuclear bomb. What's scarier is that nobody in Chris's life would have ever picked up on the fact that he lacked empathy because he was constantly taking people on a trip of delusions. This became such a deep need and addiction that he was willing to do whatever he had to in order to keep this going. When he switched up his identity with someone new, Nicole Kessinger, he was willing to set his previous identity ablaze. And he didn't have those normal feelings of, this isn't right, you shouldn't hurt people, just get a divorce. He couldn't stop. That's one of the reasons that he continued to tell Shanann everything that she wanted to hear over text. He was beginning to shift into a completely new identity, but he was telling Shanann that he still loved her so much because he had to keep it all going and keep everyone convinced and invested until he could erase them completely. Slowly, over the span of months, Chris began to settle into the facade of adventurous, young-at-heart, desired man. That's what Nicole made him want for himself. When Nicole returned interest in Chris, that delivered slight moments of feeling that way. And that felt so much better than loving father felt to him. And every time that Chris eased into a new identity, he began to experience extreme resentment for his previous one and the people wrapped around it. And this would build and build more and more. Because Chris's entire life was a premeditation, he naturally had to plan for these murders. He couldn't act on a whim. He had to keep it together. He had to sell it to Shanann until it was time to take them out. And he exercised great control in this maneuver, which is fucking scary. Did Chris ever truly love Shanann? No. Did he ever love Nicole? Nope. He thought he did both times, truly. But he just loved the feelings that were born of those identities. Did Chris really love his mother? Yes, in a very unhealthy, toxic way. And people like Chris, they only form authentic feelings of attachment when that person can consistently deliver them with the feelings that they crave. Chris's mother, being very ill herself, was able to do that, and still does, even after he wiped out his entire family. Chris will never successfully form true feelings of attachment to another human being. He's not capable and never will be. Chris will never be reformed. Unless some miraculous treatment comes about, there's no successful treatment now of this type of behavior. His crimes are enough to keep him locked away from the world until he dies, and that is for the best. He has no foundation identity to grasp onto. He doesn't actually exist in a functioning way. Therefore, there's no possibility to make him better. He has no real anchor. There are entire Reddit posts dedicated to trying to understand why Chris did what he did. Some are dedicated to finding red flags, but his red flags could only be caught by someone familiar with this type of affliction. Even still, not a single person on this planet could have predicted that Chris was capable of murdering his family. That is because nobody knew that he lacked empathy. He successfully kept that hidden from the world. Once he murdered, that can of worms was finally released. Many other people suffer from similar afflictions, but it isn't enough to drive them to kill. They may be able to shut themselves down from guilt of hurting people or kicking people out of their life, but they cannot completely quiet the guilt of taking a person's life. That makes those individuals far less dangerous and scary than Chris Watts. Back to the letters. Chris explains in detail exactly what transpired on August 13th, 2018. In the early morning hours, he got into an argument with Shanann. He told her that he wanted out of the marriage. Allegedly, I'm not inclined to believe Chris when he claims this part. He knew he was going to kill her and their babies long before August 13th. Telling Shanann would have only served a purpose to him if he was looking for something to provoke a rage to help keep his nerve, which is possible, but I don't believe that he needed any help in that department. Before he ever placed his hands around Shanann's throat, Chris snuck into the room where Cece and Bella slept and forced a pillow over their tiny heads. But Chris had obviously watched this done on too many movies. He didn't smother them long enough to cause death. He just rendered them unconscious from hypoxia. He then went into the room that he shared with his wife and strangled her to death. He didn't grip her hard enough to rupture any arteries. He didn't grip her hard enough to break any bones. He only gripped her hard enough to completely cut off air supply. In the process, he still caused 
internal and external trauma. He caused bruising on her facial tissue and thyroid bone. He caused abrasions from his fingernails on her cheek and neck. He caused bruising on some of her neck and throat muscles and cartilage. She definitely fought back. But something about this autopsy leads me to believe that Shanann was likely asleep when the attack began. There's no way to know for certain. She obviously sprung awake after the attack began. After fighting her deep disorientation, she wriggled and tried hard to escape his mad grasp. Her ultimate cause of death was asphyxiation by manual strangulation. She would have been ran over by a deep sense of doom and panic that'd be coupled with the utter shock that Chris was trying to kill her. She suspected that he was having an affair, but never once would the thought that her life was in danger cross her mind. Her head would feel like it's filling with hot helium. It would feel heavy and hazy. Within seconds, it would begin to pound like a thunderstorm was raging inside of her brain. Soon, she'd wonder if it was going to pop like an overinflated balloon, sending brain matter and bone fragments splattering on the walls and bed. Her throat would fiercely burn. She would desperately try to swallow spit just to moisten and cool the searing heat, but wouldn't have the power to force the reflex. It would be as if molten glass or lava was rising up beyond the constriction of Chris's fingers, sending the sickening taste of rusted pennies onto her tongue. She probably desperately tried to rasp a scream, but with the intense pressure on her vocal cords, no sound would escape. She probably wildly flung her arms around, trying to hit Chris hard enough to get him off of her, but to no avail. After around 90 seconds, she'd realize she was going to die. She would think about a million different things, her babies at the forefront. She'd wonder how in the hell she got there, how this was happening. She'd wonder what would come after. What would police say? What would Chris say? Would he hurt their children? The Shanann from two minutes ago would never dream of saying yes. But this? This was a different time. He was manually draining her life from her body. Something that felt fucking unbelievable. She likely lost consciousness within the two to three minute mark, likely closer to the two. Death would finally sweep over her already lifeless body in around four to five. To Chris's dismay, his two daughters were still alive. They crawled into the room that he shared with his wife as he was wrapping her in a sheet. Little Bella, clutching hard onto her blankie, asked what was wrong with mommy. Chris claimed that she wasn't feeling well. Chris backed his truck up as close to the house as he could, with the back touching the garage. He threw Shanann's body in. He grabbed both of his girls and tucked them into the back seat with their blinkies and stuffies. He drove to the oil field where he worked. His first order of business was to smother Cece. He snuffed her out with her own blankie, with Bella just inches away. He brought Cece's lifeless body up the stairs of the oil tank and shoved her into the tiny opening at the top. After, he went back to Bella with Cece's blanket in his hands. She cried out, Daddy, no! before he smothered her in the same way that he smothered Cece. She fought like hell. She tried to yell out. She flailed and kicked. In the process of her fight, she bit her tongue inside of her mouth, causing serious trauma, later seen in her autopsy. Sadly, her tiny frame was no match for her father. He won the battle. He again dragged yet another lifeless body to the top of the stairs of a different oil tank. He had trouble fitting her, but eventually managed to squeeze her into the opening. An act, Chris claimed, was to prevent his two daughters from waking up a second time. He didn't even try to put Shanann's body into the tank. He knew it would never fit. Growing exhausted from the hellacious work he'd already put in, he dug a shallow grave where he placed his pregnant wife. When authorities were later led to this makeshift graveyard, the fetus of Chris and Shanann's unborn baby was found expelled from her decomposing womb next to her in her burial ground. Chris's kill count stood at four. Cece didn't fight back when Chris smothered her. There was no evidence of external trauma on her body. She was likely asleep at first and too overwhelmed with confusion when she woke to fight. Or perhaps she fought a little but was too weakened for it to induce any external signs. Regardless, both of those innocent little girls died completely afraid. Even more heart-wrenching, Bella died knowing the full grim reality. Their experiences were similar to their mothers who loved them dearly. They felt utter panic and desperation. Their tiny throats burned with a need for cool water. Their heads felt like they were growing in size, just throbbing relentlessly. Both likely finally lost consciousness between one and two minutes. My hope is that it occurred fast due to the previous smothering attempt, but it's unlikely to have been a factor. It probably took around two minutes of that hell before they faded away. 
and death came calling around two minutes after that. There's been a lot of speculation that those babies were alive when placed in the oil tank. I can assure you that at least that much isn't true. Both girls were dead. Though oil sludge was found in their stomachs, that's to be expected considering how they were placed and for how long. No hemorrhaging or bleeding of any kind occurred when Bella was shoved through the tiny hole, though it induced trauma. Chris had to work at fitting her through for some time. At times, he smacked her little head on the hard surface. Had she been alive, we would have seen evidence of that in the report, and none was found. And now, Chris has molted into another new identity entirely. It is that of reformed born-again Christian. He told the woman who he had bonded with through letters in their last phone call that he believed he would one day be out of prison. He claimed that he had read the Bible for the first time in prison. He jots down scriptures each day for his parents. He even went so far as to say that he speaks with his wife and children every morning and every night. He's a changed man. Good thing nobody important is buying this ludicrous bullshit. On that same phone call, he asked the woman that when he does indeed get out of prison, if she would trust him to watch her granddaughter. That was a bridge too far. Chris was no doubt angling for a character witness for his appeal. If he could get this kind gentlewoman to claim that she trusted him to be alone with her grandbabies, then he'd be one step closer to freedom. She was done at that point. She was also shocked. She answered, are you kidding me? You will never be with my granddaughter. She hung up and never spoke to him again. It was that moment that she realized she had made a huge mistake in reaching out to this wretched, wretched man. Everything that Chris does is a careful calculation. He doesn't understand how to function any other way. He even allegedly penned a note dated for August 6, 2018, the week prior to his heartless acts. It read, To whom it may concern, if anyone gets this letter, I would never do anything to hurt myself, my children, or my wife. If anything happens to me, investigate my wife. Chris was delusional enough to believe that this letter would work in any way. All that it did was give us another glimpse into his fucked up head. After all, he listed the people in his life by priority and resentment. He, of course, listed himself first, followed by his children, and then his wife, the person who he resented the most. This was because she countered his newly desired identity. Yet another testament to the fact that Chris will never change. Thank you, my love, so much for following me on this journey into murder. It definitely became a longer journey than I anticipated, but I hope that you found it interesting enough to follow until the end. We shall meet again at this time next week. Until then.